Hello and welcome to another Slate spoiler special podcast. Today we're going to be spoiling Glass Onion, the second Knives Out mystery from writer-director Ryan Johnson. If you are familiar with the Knives Out mystery franchise, it's not quite a sequel that we're talking about here. It is another installment with the same detective, sort of Sherlock Holmes or Pink Panther style, following up on the wildly successful Knives Out from a few years back. Boiling Glass Onion with me today will be Dan Coyce, a writer at Slate and frequent companion here on the podcast. Dan, you just rewatched Glass Onion, which I'm very grateful for, because this is a very twisty movie indeed. If we were going to get into all the twists in this movie, we would be here taping all day. So you're going to be my point man for deciding how to prioritize the multiple twists in this movie. I'm happy to be here. And I just want to stress to all the listeners that there was zero rhino in those pills. And you shouldn't worry about the boner pills that I advertised on my Twitch stream. It's only quality snake oil being sold by Dan Coys. Uh, maybe before we get into Glass Onion, we should just briefly touch on um, Knives Out and sort of what the distinction is between the two, what what the director is trying to do by continuing with this series. Because I feel like he's he's reopening a kind of an era of cinema history that was closed too soon, the era of Pink Panther, Sherlock Holmes style movies, something that I guess you could say Kenneth Branagh is up to as well with the Hercule Poirot movies, but those never caught on the way the first Knives Out did. Ryan Johnson has always been a real scholar and lover of genre and he makes extremely good slightly tweaked genre movies and these this is a very specific genre it's the mystery in which the only thing connecting the various movies is that there's one marvelous detective who just happens to find himself wrapped up in so many shenanigans I think that the, actually the identity of that detective, I mean, the, the fact that he's played by Daniel Craig, who's familiar to us mainly as this very dour James Bond over the past decade, and how much fun he's having with the role, and just what an unusual figure this is in the genre landscape, accounts for a big part of the affection toward these movies. I mean, something that we discover in the new Knives Out is that, um, or the Knives Out mystery, as they're calling it, Glass Onion, is that Benoit Blanc is gay, right? Briefly hinted at by the fact that uh, when his doorbell is rung by another character, Hugh Grant answers the door in an apron. Apparently, as his a very rumpled looking, adorable Hugh Grant, yes, <laughs> in the midst apparently of baking something because he's covered in flour. And for a moment, I thought, you know, is he sort of his his um, right hand man, a la you know Watson, right, with Sherlock Holmes? But I think, and Johnson has confirmed this in interviews. I think that is supposed to, in fact, be Benoit Blanc's boyfriend. I also think Benoit Blanc's delightful outfits throughout the last movie, but particularly this movie, confirm uh, the, his sartorial queerness, at least. Oh, yeah. The costuming in this movie is one of the, the high points, I think, of every character. Just really, really wonderful choices on the costumes. But something else that I saw someone pointing out online about Benoit Blanc that's unusual is that he is nice. He's not a hard-boiled detective character who, you know, is introduced sort of, you know, swigging from a bottle and staring out a window and doing all the Sam Spade, Philip Marlowe things that detectives do. He actually seems to be a caring person and in both movies makes a, a an alliance, a bond with a young woman and tries to sort of help her get out of her own um, personal dilemma in the in the process of solving the mystery. 
Right. He's more of like a, an even gentler, nicer Columbo. Right. Yeah. And it has a little of the same appeal also with as we watch him deduce things, with the exception that we don't really know the things that he figures out. I mean, unless you're a really good mystery figure outer, it's not like Columbo where you get it all laid down for you. Okay. The last thing I want to establish before we get into the twists of Glass Onion itself, did you like this movie? And do you feel like you would send people to it, in particular, people who love Knives Out and wanted more of the same? It's super fun. I had a great time. We were lucky enough to see it in a theater during its brief one-week release in theaters around Thanksgiving. I think you as well saw it around that time. And um, yes, it is a delightful time at the movies with attractive people wearing funny costumes, saying very funny lines, uh, and a mystery that is fun to watch in its unteasing. Totally agree. I definitely would send people to it. And this is the last meta thing I'll say before we start the discussion. I really think that Netflix made a huge, huge mistake in not leaving this in theaters longer because I saw this in a packed theater, you know, right before that one week run you mentioned. And it was uproarious. People were laughing, squealing, gasping at the plot twists, talking about it on the way out. It was one of those kinds of movies, a real audience event kind of movie. And I just feel like they really shot themselves in the foot by not giving more people that opportunity and then, you know, yanking it from everybody for almost a month and then dumping it only on Netflix. And when it did open right before Christmas on Netflix, I heard a lot of people who, you know, were watching it alone on their couch saying, ah, this didn't really live up to the first movie. I mean, I agree that it doesn't quite have the punch of the first Knives Out, but my Lord, it's fun. I think that people should really give it a chance if they are at all interested. Watch it in a group. Watch it after a glass of wine. Um, and yeah, and, it, you know, ne- from our perspective, Netflix totally screwed up. From Netflix's perspective, I'm sure it's working out exactly as they wanted it to in their glass onion on their Greek island where they keep the Mona Lisa, all those Netflix executives, evil geniuses that they are. I don't know, but but I don't think they're missing out on what word of mouth could have done for the online release had they milked it a little bit longer in theaters first. Because instead, I feel like, well, maybe this is only on social media, but that there's a, a wave of negative response to it that probably would not have been happening had people had that social experience. But make it as social as you can on your couch. I think that's really the answer at this point. So as for the movie itself, let's get to the um, the boxes. I think that's the first point that we want to hit is the invitations that all of the characters, um, all new characters to the franchise receive in the opening sequence of the movie. Everybody gets a big, mysterious wooden box at their house. I think we should go through who all these recipients are and what happens with the mysterious box. Sure. So um, we meet each of these characters, bang, 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 one after another, right at the beginning of the movie as this box arrives at their house. We have Claire, who is the governor of Connecticut. She's uh, played by Catherine Hahn. She's a little bit harried. It's the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so she's working at home just like everyone else. And this box arrives at her house. We see Lionel, who is a scientist uh, at a mysterious company called Alpha. He's played by Leslie Odom Jr., And uh, we meet him in the lab as he's arguing with various alpha shareholders about the cockamamie scheme that their boss, Miles, wants to hatch. We meet Birdie, who is a ex-model turned entrepreneur turned forever party animal. We meet her in the middle of the pandemic in an apartment in New York filled with people partying wildly, mask-free. She is played by Kate Hudson. And we meet Duke who is a video game streamer turned, I guess, sort of men's rights activist type dude on YouTube, played by Dave Bautista. We meet him as he's uh, streaming a video uh, in which he has to say, a lot of people have been asking me about this, 
but no, Jimmy Kimmel, I do not hate boobs. We also meet his girlfriend, Whiskey. We briefly meet his mom, whose house it turns out he's uh, live streaming from. And she is the best at solving all these puzzles in this gigantic box that their friend Miles, uh, a Elon Musk-esque entrepreneur and tech genius and the head of the Alpha Company, um, has sent them. Once they unlock all the various puzzles in this box, there's like a a chess-related puzzle and a compass and a magic eye thing and kind of abacus deal. Um, The box opens majestically, and inside it is a model of a glass onion and an invitation to Miles's private Greek island for the weekend for these beloved disruptors to get together and celebrate after a very, very difficult year. And we meet one other character who doesn't get on the phone with all of her friends to try and figure out this box on the fly, but who instead simply takes a hammer and whacks at the box until it shatters into a million pieces and pulls out the envelope. That's Andy Cassandra Brand, played by Janelle Monet. And Andy, as we'll learn later, is or was the um, the partner, the business partner, and I think it's implied the romantic partner, though the movie never comes out and says that, of, of Miles Braun back when he founded the Alpha Company. The one thing I wanted to, to mention about that opening introductory sequence and how the characters are all set up is that it, it's one of the high points of the movie, I think, um, which is maybe not a great thing to have one of your best sequences right up front. But there's the split screen, you know, multiple split screens as there's this mass phone call of of all the influencers dis- disruptors figuring out the the bo- the puzzle box together that's kind of beautifully edited and just a very economic introduction of each of them with some very funny moments like as you said Dave Bautista's mother being you know the smartest person on screen basically except for Benoit Blanc fantastic like a great little cameo there and i wish that she had come back to help solve the uh, the mystery at the end and then the contrast of that right the contrast of that very manic energy of all of them solving it together and being so excited and self-congratulatory which something that we don't quite understand yet, which is just this bleakness of the way that Andy smashes the box with a hammer and, you know, just gets through all of the uh, the clever um, ruses that have been set up by Miles with just pure brute force. I, I love that um, contrast. And then we see Benoit in his bathtub, depressed because he doesn't have a case. Uh, he's on a Zoom call with his close friends, <laughs> um, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Angela Lansbury, uh, Stephen Sondheim, and Natasha Leon, they're playing among among us, which Benoit Blanc just doesn't quite understand. And they're worried about him. They're worried about their pal. They're all puzzle lovers. They're all mystery buffs. And they all think their friend Benoit is looking a little down in the dumps. He hasn't really gotten out of the bathtub in a couple of weeks. And uh, then there's a knock at his door. And his partner, who we'll later see is Hugh Grant, shouts, there's someone here with a box. And then we cut to Greece, where all of these people have descended upon uh, the pier in order to take the boat out to their good friend Miles' island. Right. Then there's a bit of a throwaway scene, but I think it's important for the the COVID theme, which unfortunately gets a bit dropped from the movie after this, where everybody gets a mystery COVID vaccine. You know, the idea being that only extremely wealthy people are going to be able to have access to this vaccine, administered for some reason by Ethan Hawke on the dock as they all take off. I have a theory as to what that reason is. I believe Ethan Hawke just happened to be in like Croatia or Serbia or wherever they were shooting this because he's shooting a new link letter with Julie Delpy, the next in the before series. We don't know it, but I'd like to imagine that's why he was there. 
One thing that is worth mentioning about that Ethan Hawke cameo is that this is a very cameo-stuffed movie. I mean, not only the, the the stars that come to the island, but every few minutes, it seems like, there's there's somebody dropping in. Brian Johnson must be a very good sweet talker or a lot of fun to work with, because it seems like every time he calls up somebody, they say yes to whatever he asks them to do. I think there's more to it than that. I think that these so these cameos tell us something about what kind of movie this really is. Like, when you have a movie that just that is the kind of production that can afford to just have Serena Williams appear on screen for a throwaway joke and that Serena Williams wants to be involved with that can have Yo-Yo Ma show up to explain what a fugue is uh, a throwaway bit that also helpfully explains the entire structure of the film. Um, You're sort of making an argument for your movie as a throwback to these glamorous star filled pink Panther esque entertainments, light entertainments of the sixties and seventies. Those cameos say to me, it is not necessarily, it is not necessary to take this entirely seriously. It is necessary to enjoy the beautiful locale, the well-dressed stars. It's basically fantasy Island, but with better jokes. And I love that about it. And I also think that sort of explains some of the backlash against it, which is from people for whom the better cutting social satire of the first knives out led them to believe that this might be something a little bit different. I don't think it is different. I think it's a superb light entertainment, uh, but that hoping it's something else is definitely a road to disappointment. Yeah, you're right. And it does clearly signal to us what kind of movie it is. It's certainly not a movie that, you know, leads you to believe that it's going to be something else and then disappoints you. And it's it's a movie that you kind of have to go with the flow of, for example, all the insane twists to come. Uh, let's let's get to the very first set of twists, which have to do with the fake murder mystery, the admittedly avowedly fake murder mystery that Miles is setting up for his guests, because that invitation that he sent out in the fancy boxes was essentially inviting them to one of those kind of house parties where you pretend that someone has been murdered and everyone's job is to figure out who else at the house party did it. And that's kind of our, our first introduction to Miles's universe. And of course, we know that Miles is this genius who founded this company and is the kind of entrepreneur who comes up with incredible ideas in the middle of the night and faxes them to everyone he works for. So we believe this murder mystery must be pretty elaborate. And in fact, that must be why Benoit Bloch has been invited, because he's part of this murder mystery. But then once they all land on the island, Miles takes Bloch aside and demands to know, why are you here? I didn't invite you. And it seems as though one of the guests reassembled their puzzle box, Blanc speculates, delivered it to him and invited him along. Miles, because he loves the best of everything, kind of loves the idea of Benoit Blanc being on his island, the world's best detective. After all, he's the guy who hired Gillian Flynn to write his murder mystery. So why not have Benoit Blanc there to maybe solve it? The problem is that Benoit Blanc solves it in like three seconds. And I think a very funny scene. Right. That's at the very first dinner, right? The first gathering on their first evening on this remote Greek island. Miles sits them down to dinner and explains the murder mystery, or rather sets it up for them. And yeah, you're right. I think it's maybe the the very first comment after that is Benoit Blanc solving the entire mystery <laughs> as we as we get cuts to the very irritated Ed Norton watching it get solved in real time. Yeah. Miles says, all right, the mystery has begun. Benoit Blanc is like, oh, great, great. It's on. Okay. It was Birdie. And here's how she did it. And here's why she did it. Here's the motive. Here's how it was going to happen. Here were all the clues. 
I, I love uh, the bit in the script where Blanc cannot stop himself from belittling the various puzzles that Ed Norton, that Miles has spent so much money on. And yeah, he solves it just like that. Miles is pissed. Benoit and Miles go upstairs and Benoit says, look, I'm worried that you have brought all these people here who all have a reason to wish you harm. And you've presented to them the idea of murdering you. Like, why would you do something like that? Miles poo-poos it. Of course, none of his friends, his fellow beloved disruptors, um, want to murder him. But then, after dinner, they're all boozily celebrating. It turns into a boozy argument when Andy comes in and tells, reminds them all that they double-crossed her because they all are so dependent on Miles uh, for everything in their lives. Claire depends on him to... finance her campaign. He's given Lionel the job of a lifetime. He funds Duke's uh, YouTube streaming. He funds Birdie's new sweatpants business. They're all dependent on him. And when, when Andy went against him in some kind of trial, they all went against her. There's a little bit more of an argument. And then all of a sudden, Duke drops dead. Yes, and as you pointed out to me, something that had slipped my mind in the six weeks since I've seen this movie, this happens quite early in the film, right? I mean, the first real murder that we see takes place in the first half of the movie, and the entire structure of the movie, to go back to Yo-Yo Ma and his fugues, then becomes an unspooling of the previous events seen from different perspectives. Something that happened in Knives Out as well, actually, is that the way that the, the viewer gets drawn into being able to solve the mystery themselves is that we see events that we've already heard about, but from a different angle that allows us more information each time we see it. And Benoit Blanc is always a little bit ahead of us, or in many cases, a lot ahead of us. He knows so much more than us going in, but we're only privy to a little bit of what he knows. And that's like the Ryan Johnson trick. That's his decision, what to show us and what not to show us. The lights go out due to a pre-planned dramatic moment in Miles's murder mystery, leaving them in this gigantic, insane place. Let's talk about the place a little bit, the glass onion itself, a huge mansion on a Greek Island. They're in the central room, which is full of like Lalique's and Banksy's and a big portrait of Miles with a shirt off. And as the coup de gras, the actual Mona Lisa, which Miles says um, he has borrowed from the Louvre because they were a little short of money. And they said that he had to have it behind this like fireproof security system, but he doesn't abide by those rules. He's a disruptor. So he's got an easy way to disable the security system so he can look the Mona Lisa in the eye. Yeah, I mean, another part of the great design of this movie, in addition to the costumes being fabulous, is that you just keep discovering new pieces of good slash bad taste throughout the the Glass Onion complex. And I love just some of the the chases and and explorations of hallways where you'll just casually see, you know, a Matisse or a Rothko just hanging there, right? I mean, and and very, very early on, we didn't mention this, but he welcomes them, Miles Braun welcomes them to his island, strumming Paul McCartney's actual guitar, which he then casually tosses aside and you hear it clatter to the ground. So, I mean, there's just a sense that he is this careless, acquisitive gajillionaire. Right. He has good taste, but the point of the taste is is to surround himself with the best. Benoit Blanc, the best detective, fits right in there, but he has the Mona Lisa because it's the world's greatest masterpiece. He um he has that guitar because it's because it's McCartney's guitar. He has a, an hourly dong that plays on the island at the turn of every hour that Phil Glass wrote for him that is actually just Joseph Gordon-Levitt's voice going, dong. <laughs> and he, I never knew that was JGL. <laughs> yes. And so it, it, I, one thing I like about the movie is that it 
shows us instantly what kind of guy he is. And it shows us instantly that he's not truly a genius. He is a kind of charlatan, um, which then becomes part of the unraveling of the mystery later on. So they're all in the dark in this insane locale, mostly unpeopled except for them. And of course, Daryl, the house guest. And then they're all running around. Miles is convinced, he says, that someone is there to shoot him because it was his drink that uh, Duke was drinking right before he fell over dead. Everyone's running around the house. Benoit runs into Andy out in the courtyard. They seem to all of a sudden be in cahoots talking about how they've almost unraveled the mystery. And then from behind a glass panel, Andy is shot. She falls over dead. Benoit Blanc turns to see everyone coming out to stare at him and the victim. He herds them all back inside and he says, I know exactly what happened and I'm going to explain it to you. And then we cut to black and a knock at the door and we are right back a little before the beginning of the story. Exactly. And because that's the place the movie starts rewinding and this fugal multi-perspective structure comes in, I think that's a good place for us to break. We've now gone through the sort of major violent events of what happens on The Glass Onion. And before we spool back to see what happened earlier, let's take a quick break. If you enjoy this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get an ad-free experience across the network and exclusive content on many shows. You'll also be supporting the work we do here on Spoiler Specials. Sign up now at slate.com slash spoiler plus to help support our work. All right, Dan, back to Glass Onion. Bring us to the place where this knock on the door pushes us back in time and starts to reveal new information about what we've just witnessed on the island. The person knocking on Benoit Blanc's door, answered by adorable rumpled Hugh Grant, is Andy, we think, but her hair is different. She has a thick Alabama accent. And in fact, her name is Helen. She's Andy's twin sister. The classic plot twist of the middle brow uh, action murder mystery. She has arrived at Benoit Blanc's door because her sister, Cassandra, Andy, has been murdered, she thinks. Uh, Her death has been ruled a suicide by the police, but she doesn't think she was a suicide at all. She thinks she was murdered and she wants Benoit Blanc to help her out. It turns out that right before her death, Andy sent an email to all of the other disruptors, all of Miles' inner circle, saying that she had found something that would prove once and for all that Miles was a fraud and that they knew where to find her. And what are the odds, Helen, her sister asks, that she would send this email and then kill herself, leaving no note just hours later? Benoit agrees to help her, and the, the plan he comes up with is that Helen will pretend to be Andy, will accompany him to the island, and together they will figure out which of those people is responsible for the death of her sister. And then we get a lot of the backstory of Andy, of Miles, and of the whole Disruptors group. We go back in time, about 10 years, to when they all had beautiful 2010s hair, and we learn about the history of Alpha and this weird little friend group. Right. So a Glass Onion, it turns out, the name of of the exclusive resort of Miles Braun was also the name of the bar where this friend group used to meet and build, you know, ideas about their big dreams, including a napkin, a, a fateful napkin uh, branded from the Glass Onion bar that 
Miles Braun has been parading around as his design of the infrastructure of this mysterious company called Alpha that he started, right? That's some mixture of Google. I don't know what it's supposed to be exactly. It's And then it's deliberately mysterious what it's supposed to be. It seems like it also involves some sort of crypto. I mean, it's just a, a big conglomerate of every possible, you know, gajillionaire's company you could imagine. And he has been going around parading this napkin with the sort of flowchart on it that was the initial design of Alpha. What we learn in the flashback to the Glass Onion Bar is that it was actually Andy who wrote everything down on the napkin and had that idea, as we talked about earlier, stolen from her and half the company, her half of the company taken away. So the um, the piece of evidence that she had that she emailed all the dis- the disruptors about before her death was the original Glass Onion Bar branded napkin. And I love, in, in addition to what you were saying about the, the various stupid choices that Miles Braun's character makes, that he didn't even bother to have a fake Glass Onion napkin printed up, so- something that he certainly could have done with his endless resources, but instead he made a fake old white napkin. So, so in fact, it's that branding that will prove that it was her invention. So let's talk a little bit about why they broke up. It was because Miles has this idea that he got from some apparently Norwegian charlatan for an incredible energy source that he believes is going to fuel the world. It's called Clear, probably with a K. Um, and it is some kind of hydrogen-related fuel that the the fortunes of Claire and Lionel in particular are very wrapped up in because Claire has approved a clear power plant in Connecticut. Lionel is the one guy at Alpha who's responsible for proceeding with the with Miles's crazy plans to hash this energy source, which maybe could fuel everything in the world, in fact, does fuel everything on the island that they're all sitting on, but which also, if used incorrectly, emits an enormous amount of hydrogen gas, which, as Claire immediately realizes, would turn everyone's houses into little Hindenburgs. So maybe it's not like a foolproof situation, but Miles, the disruptor, is pressuring them all into going forward with this idea of his. Andy said no. Andy stood up to him, said she wouldn't go with it, said that she would, in fact, leave the company and take her half of it, thus causing the court case that led to Andy being shut out of her half of the company and left with nothing Thanks not only to Miles's forged napkin, but to the willingness of every single one of the other disruptors to get up on the witness stand and lie and say that Alpha was Miles's idea, not Andy's idea. Right. So this alternate timeline or true timeline having been established, we now start to revisit some of the events that we've already seen on the island uh, with this new knowledge that we are equipped with, including, uh, for example, the fact that we earlier saw Whiskey, the hyper sexy girlfriend of men's rights YouTuber Duke, uh, sleeping with Miles, which and we saw Duke um, sort of seeing them, you know, from a from a concealed spot in the garden. We thought at that moment that she was betraying her boyfriend, but it turns out he deliberately sent her to seduce smiles in order to what was that in order to further his his youtuber career i can't remember it was because he wanted a spot for his uh his videos on alpha news the apple news equivalent in this which would help his numbers shoot way up miles didn't want to do it and whiskey is trying to convince him the redemption of whiskey overall is one of the fun mini 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 super subplots in this movie the way that her conversation with um 
Helen at one point reveals to us that in fact, she's just like not a stupid bimbo. She has political aspirations and she's very depressed about being roped alongside this men's rights doofus um, and is trying to find her way out of it. But the thing that she does for him is truly horrible, which is that she sleeps with this dumbass to help the other dumbass, her boyfriend, help his YouTube channel, which is languishing, succeed. So a lot of the things we learn in this section come about because Helen is becoming a kind of ace detective in her own right, fueled by her drinking of Jared Leto's hard kombucha, which has given her courage she would not otherwise have had. She's the one doing a lot of the snooping and discovering all this stuff, which she then reports to Blanc. The problem is that all of the things they find out give every single person a possible motive and opportunity to have killed Andy. One of the things she learns is that all four of them, all four of Miles's inner circle, went to Andy's house after she sent the email and tried to find her, but arrived to find the house dark and no one answering the door. Another thing that, that they discovered is that Duke got there first and maybe was the one who had the chance to kill Andy, or at least knows something about that death. And so the last thing we learn in this replaying of all the events of this sequence is that Andy, Helen, got shot, but she didn't die. In fact, the bullet was stopped in a possibly unbelievable plot twist by Andy's journal in her pocket or in her breast pocket. Before everyone shows up, Blanc seizes the moment, sprinkles her with Jeremy Renner's branded hot sauce to look like blood sticks a little in his own eyes to feign tears, has her pretend to be dead and tells her you're going to have five minutes to try and find the smoking gun uh, somewhere in the glass onion, the napkin. It's got to be in there somewhere because it wasn't in anyone's rooms, which you searched previously. I'm going to take everyone into the glass onion and see what I can reveal. He takes everyone back in. He reveals that in fact, the thing that he was looking at wrong all this time, the thing that is revealed at the center of the glass onion, he made one mistake, which was that he believed that Miles was in fact a genius, that Miles would never be the sort of person who would murder someone who had just sued him, take the one piece of evidence that could clear her name and then just hide it somewhere on his island. But in fact, Miles is exactly that kind of person. He is a giant dumbass, just like his dumbass friends. And the one thing I think that sort of makes this not quite work is that we never, ever thought Miles was smart. There is no point in this movie where we did not think that Miles is a total buffoon, the kind of buffoon who would bring everyone in for a murder mystery that he doesn't even write, that he pays Gillian Flynn to write, uh, and then gets really, really angry when someone solves it right away. Yeah, I think that's another place where the social satire of the movie is really at its sharpest is just it's it's the almost um, the endumbing, you know, of the mystery <laughs> and the idea that, you know, you don't need the smartest detective in the world like Benoit Blanc to solve something that someone like Miles Braun would come up with. Right. So part of what's happening is that our expectations are being undone by the sheer Occam's razor idiocy of the the villain. Right. And so the movie has to become the clever thing. Miles is not actually smart. So the movie, in order to hide the obviousness of his plot, the movie itself must become smart. And that's what Ryan Johnson is really good at. He's good at figuring out what to reveal when and at hiding things that later we we say, oh, 
oh, that's why Duke mentioned almost being pancaked on his motorcycle by Miles's car that day at, it was Andy's house, but Miles tries to shake it off by saying it was Anderson Cooper's birthday party. Ryan Johnson is very, very good. This, I think, is his real strength as a writer, in, in addition to writing very funny jokes, like there was zero rhino in those boner pills. He's very, very good at revealing information at the right time to really pay off in the maximum possible way. He's always been good at that. He was good at that in Brick, his first feature. He was great at that in Looper, his time travel mystery, which really is another case of the same story, unspooling multiple times in multiple ways and and layers of mystery being revealed to us, even though the characters sort of know it all along. That's very pleasurable. That's what this genre is good at delivering, and that's what I like about it. Let's take a break there since we've reached now the second moment of learning about Andy slash Helen's death and survival. That seems like a good place to stop for our last ad. Then we'll come back and spoil the climax. All right. So let's rejoin Glass Onion at the moment that uh, we've discovered that Andy, who is actually your twin sister, Helen, uh, is, is back from the dead, that Miles really is as stupid as you could possibly imagine him to be, and that... All signs are starting to point toward the fact that he was the actual murderer, at least of Andy. We haven't yet quite figured out how he is the murderer of Duke. But isn't the first thing that happens after uh, Andy's reemergence Benoit's big speech about that? It's an incredible moment of Red Hot Chili Peppers music criticism. If we ever were wondered whether Miles was a dumbass, just like a tech bro, now we know for sure. And then she produces the napkin. And then what happens? She proves to him that she, in fact, uh, was the inventor of the company. Yeah. So Benoit solves Duke's murder. Um, all the the other friends start to look at Miles dubiously and angrily. And then Helen walks down the stairs in her blood-soaked suit. Everyone gasps. Um, Birdie takes a little bit longer to figure it out than everyone else. Um, and then she has the envelope, which Miles had not burned, not done anything else with, but it just hidden in his office because he is not smart. And everyone else says, uh, looks at him wanting to know what he's going to do. And Miles has maybe his only moment of real inspiration in this entire movie. He grabs the napkin and burns it, leaving Andy Helen with nothing, leaving her with no proof. As he says, all you have is your word against mine. And there's a lot of crazy accusations going on around here, but are any of these people going to back you up? And one by one, all the other members of the inner circle say, no, they're not going to back her up. And Helen is left in tears. Benoit Blanc says he can't help her. He can't, he can't be the police. He can only give her what she can give to the police. And he says to her, all I can give you is a little liquid courage. He hands her a drink and a reminder of why Andy turned away from Miles in the first place. And he hands her something we don't quite know what it is, the last little piece of withheld information that Ryan Johnson delivers. Helen goes on her rampage. Um, she breaks all of those Laliques and various other glass sculptures. She destroys the glass piano that Bertie says was maybe owned by Liberace. Um, she inspires all the other 
friends of Miles to enact their own revenge, to break various sculptures, to to break other things, to yell at Miles, to flip him off, to embrace the, their own rage that they feel about the years that they have been dependent on him and the ways that he has exerted his power over them. And then Helen pulls out the thing that Benoit gave her, which is a little tiny chunk of clear, that miracle fuel, which she throws into the fire she set in the middle of the room, which causes the entire glass onion to explode into flames because, of course, it's the Hindenburg. Although I was willing to accept all kinds of insane plot twists, the classic twin switcheroo, as you said, or the diary in her pocket stopping a bullet, right? All of these things I'm willing to accept because they're movie conventions and it's a it's a crazy mystery with wild twists. But the fact that the supposed Hindenburg fuel being thrown into a big open fire inside a glass dome doesn't create an explosion that kills them all, undercuts the movie's own argument. And I, my viewing companion that I came out of the movie with, although we both loved the movie, both complained about this. I feel like the, the plausibility that they would all survive that explosion unharmed is so small that it almost undercuts the idea that clear with a K is really that dangerous of a fuel in the first place. Well, I mean, it does send flames through the entire ventilation system, sending jets of fire 10 feet high shooting here and there. Yes, it's dumb that they don't all instantly die in the explosion, but what kind of movie would that be? I didn't want anyone more to die than already had, but I wanted there to have been some sort of ergonomical, logistical explanation of how they got out of the way in time so that we really did believe that it was that the, the chemical could have was capable of destroying them all and the entire island. Um, but instead, a little bit like, you know, Warner Brothers cartoon victims of an explosion, they're all just sort of slightly frazzled and blackened as they wander out. Have we talked about the climax of the climax? The moment Andy slash Helen, I don't know what to call her either, actually pushes down on this special statue that Miles has rigged to deactivate the Louvre's great protection system, right? So the very last thing we see after the glass onion has exploded and everything's been shattered is a very close-up um, shot of the Mona Lisa's face going up in flames. Right. That's her coup de grace. That is... Uh... Even Because even after she knocks over all the sculptures, even after she sets everything on fire, Miles is like, well, what do you think that's going to accomplish? And the thing she accomplishes, as she says, is that his miracle fuel just barbecued the most famous work of art in the world. And so that is the launch of his miracle fuel. The company is dead. His prospects are dead. He's going to go broke. She has finally uh, vindicated her sister and avenged her death. Also, a beautiful callback there to an earlier piece of dialogue when he braggadociously shows them that he has the Mona Lisa at the beginning and says that he's about to invent something. This is clear that he's thinking about that will associate him forever in the same sentence as the Mona Lisa, which, of course, in a great tragic irony at the end, he is. He'll be remembered forever as the asshole who destroyed the world's most famous painting. So where does this leave the Knives Out franchise? Do you believe in Benoit Blanc as a character who can support multiple starry mysteries set in various delightful locales? And where would you put the next Knives Out? First of all, yes, I so completely do. And I regard as a real Grinch anyone who would say that there isn't more life in this character in this franchise, even if they didn't love this chapter of it. It's still different than anything else that's out there. It's full of energy and zest and fun performances and funny lines. And I very much hope there will be another Knives Out mystery. I suspect there will. Where would I put it? I don't know. Now that we've had one that's on in sort of a luxury European spot, 
I think I might be interested in for, for them to go somewhere in Asia, you know, and maybe include also some some Asian superstars in the mix. And that seems like something that, that Ryan Johnson, as a lover of world cinema, could dig his teeth into satisfyingly. I would love to see them in a city. So like maybe put them in Tokyo and let the city work its magic around them. That would be really fun. And I hope... It certainly seems like this movie is setting up some kind of future in which it's not just Benoit Blanc, but it's Benoit and Helen solving cases together, her fueling her detective spirit with a little shot of hard kombucha for courage. I would love seeing those two make their way through Shanghai or whatever, solving the next big mystery. We'll know soon because he signed a a very lucrative two-picture deal with Netflix, so there's definitely another Knives Out movie coming down the pike. That is something that I hope happens, and if if she were to survive... if, if Janelle Monet's character were to move on to the next one, it would be an interesting sort of idea of accumulating characters as the franchise goes if there are people who want to continue to move with it. I mean, by that logic, Anna de Armas's character could have been helping solve the mystery in this movie, right? So who knows whether he'll, he'll go with that or not. But I'm there to see it. All right. Well, whenever that next Knives Out mystery comes along, Dan, please come on and help me understand the plot twists as you did this time by layering in all of the different temporal time frames for me. Happy to. That does it for this week's Slate Spoiler Special. You can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not going to put up my usual call here for suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like us to spoil in the future because... Sad news for longtime loyal listeners of the Spoiler Special podcast. The show is going on hiatus, indefinite hiatus, as it already has once before in its history. I know I'll miss doing the show. If you will miss listening to it as well, you can send your feedback to spoilers at slate.com and I'll be sure to read it. Our producer today was Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of audio at Slate. For Dan Coyce, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in two weeks.